Hello and welcome to The Politics of Peterborough, the podcast where we chat with the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock. Just before we get started, the next episode of the podcast will be with local radio legend Paul Stainton. We'll look to get into the issues around local and national media and also his views on the local political scene. If you have any questions you'd like me to put to Paul, or if you have any feedback on the episodes, please do get in touch. Send us a tweet, direct message us on either Twitter or Facebook at politicspboro, or send an email to politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. On with the show. Our guest for this episode worked for the Woodland Trust for 30 years before retiring last year. He's also a member of PECT, the Peterborough Environment City Trust, having been a long-time board member. First elected to the council in 1996 in what was then Walton Ward, he's gone on to be re-elected a further seven times and is currently in his 28th year as a councillor, now for the Paston and Walton Ward. Councillor Nick Sanford, welcome to the politics of Peterborough. Thank you, it's really good to be here. Now, you went to school in Bolton uh, and then university in Oxford. What was it that brought you to Peterborough nearly 40 years ago? Yeah, well, well further back than that, I originate from um, Hoddersfield, which is on, on, the, on the opposite side of the Pennines. Um, but then we moved around the country as a child and then ended up living up in what was called Greater Manchester. And then I, I went to university at Oxford and... Um, one of the things I, I remember saying at the time, I don't want to move to l- down to London, but it was in the recession of the early 80s, and so all the jobs were down in London, so I ended up m- moving there. But I was never... I found London too too hectic and too busy and too pricey, and so when the company... I was working for an insurance company called Lloyd's Life, and um, they announced that they were going to relocate up to P- Peterborough, and... A lot of about eighty percent of their employees didn't relocate, but I was quite pleased. So, so moved up to Peterborough in eighty four, and um, they, they because it, it was part of the Peterborough Development Corporation's program for growing Peterborough, and so they, you know they, they gave us some quite generous re- relocation terms. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever reg- don't think I've ever regretted coming to Peterborough because um, it, it always really surprises me when. Peterborough finishes highly in these in these competitions for the worst place in the country because I've seen far far worse places than than Peterborough. Were you into politics from a young age? Yeah, really, I was. Um, I, I suppose my I suppose my parents always interest they they had a general interest, but they never they were also the, like the archetypal floating voters and they never used to reveal who they'd voted for. I remember watching, when I was about six years old, I was watching the 1966 general election on TV and I can remember feeling rather sorry for this party called the Liberal Party in those days that was not getting hardly any seats and so that sort of got me interested but then I went to a private school and um, it was a very strict private school and they you know we we actually learned a lot there but that really got me interested in the in the concepts of personal freedom um so and then I found out that was one of the major things that the liberal party advocated so I became a liberal party supporter 
And I actually remember um, when I was about 14, the 1974 general election, I said to my mum, I said, I really want to get involved in the general election, but she said, you're not old enough. So what I did was I got one of those old-fashioned um, machines that, that, that makes sticky tape, and I printed out the name of the Liberal candidate, and I stuck it on my, on my briefcase. So that was my first, first involvement in, in politics, really. Now, you stood as a candidate in Peterborough in the general elections for 2001, 2005 and 2010, yeah. uh, and then North West Cambridgeshire in 2015. Mm. How does that compare to standing in a local election? Um, it's a bit more intensive, actually, because, you know, they... I, I suppose ideally, if you want to get elected as an MP, you, you, you have to campaign over like a four or five year period. And and even then, in a place like Peterborough, which is always traditionally a hard fought seat between Labour and Conservative, it's very di difficult. But the Liberal the Democrats often tend to choose their parliamentary candidate in Peterborough at quite a late point. So it, it tends to be a fairly short fairly intensive campaign. I, I think I can claim that when I, st when I first stood in Peterborough in, in 2001, um, we'd polled in the previous election about 9%, and, and over three elections I actually got the, our percentage vote up to 19.5% in, in 2010. Um, the, the 2010 election, as people may remember, was the one... Where they had the three had the de debates between the three party leaders and Lib Dem leader Nick Clegg made a really big impression and there was a phenomenon called Clegg mania at the, at the time, um, so I think that that helped. But then I rather blotted my copybook to some extent because I then stood in Northwest Cambridge in twenty fifteen. And I didn't enjoy that, ele that election because it was at the end of the coalition period. I'd never been particularly keen on the idea of Liberal Democrats going into coalition with with the Conservatives. We'd got a bit of a raw end of the. We got a bit of a raw deal out of various aspects of it. So you know, it, it was almost like a hiding to no nothing. I, I think I saved the deposit, but but only just. Now, you spent 17 years as the local Lib Dem group leader and so far been a councillor for 27 years. What motivates you to keep going, keep being re-elected? Um, I think I quite like... Um, I'm, I'm perhaps an unusual type of person, really, because a lot of Liberal Democrats, particularly councillors, are, are very into it more from the from the um in, from involvement with the with the local community i think that's really important and the philosophy that liberal democrats have that you know councillors should be part of their local community and should seek to involve local people is really important but i'm also i'm, I'm slightly unusual for a liberal democrat councillor that i i do have a fairly strong ideological motivation as well and you know one of my reasons that I think it's important to practice what we call community politics is not as a means of us just getting more getting more support but it's actually because I believe that power that it's a healthier situation where power is sp is spread and one of the things I really dislike dis about the way that 
Peterborough City Council and a number of other councils operate is we have this what's known as a leader and cabinet system where all of the decision making is done by a very small number of councillors and there's a lot of personal power concentrated in the hand of one councillor who's the who's the council leader. There was a there's a phrase I would I remember picking up a number of years ago, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and I think there's quite a strong element of truth in, in that. Do you kind of have a, an end point at mind or are you just happy to, to keep on going? I think really I would have always liked to have been an MP actually. I think there's, I could almost see myself as a, as like a backbench member of parliament because the, 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 the idea of helping people you know, with their, with their problems quite appeals to me because you, you, you do an element of that as a local councillor. But also the, the idea of, you know, having a platform, say, in Parliament to promote Liberal Democrat policies. I I don't think I would ever have had any ambitions, you know, to, to be Prime Minister or anything like that. Although um, I'm really interested in transport. So being Secretary of State for Transport, that would that would appeal. You know, I'm, I'm quite... Um, it, it's, it's looking as though I may... Been we we appoint our mayor on a, like a seniority principle. So um, the current incumbent Alan Alan Dowson's the longest serving councillor. So when he gives up the job later this year, I'll be the I'll be the longest serving councillor. So so I think that's the next move on for me because you know I think the um, I was I was often you know not. I haven't really historically been that involved with the work of the mayor, but since I've been the deputy, I've actually seen that there's a lot of potential, you know, for for the mayor, you know, not just going out to local community groups, but getting involved with local schools and local companies. And one of the things I've seen is that people, when we, you know, when we go as the deputy mayor and the deputy mayoress. People are often really pleased that somebody from the council is actually taking an interest in their group or their company or whatever. And, and I think there's a lot more that we could do that. Now, as you were saying earlier, the Liberal Democrats nationally were essentially decimated in the 2015 election after the coalition years went into that with 57, finished uh, with eight. Since then, they've moved back up to 14, but are still a fairly trivial presence within the House of Commons. Currently, Labour are holding a commanding lead in the polls and the Lib Dems are averaging around 9%. Can you see a way for the party to become a more significant force again? Yeah, I, I think so. The, traditionally, the, the, the problem that the Liberal Democrats have had, certainly in the last 20, 30 years, is we've we've always had a really strong b- b- base in local authorities our our mechanism of community campaigning you know keeping in touch with people all the year round is a real well you know i think it's important from a political angle to say spreading spreading power to the people but it it's also a good campaigning technique it it becomes a bit harder at the parliamentary level because um, a parliamentary constituency may have about 80,000 people in it and it's it's more difficult for an an, an MP to, to to build up a personal relationship with 80,000 people so at the parliamentary level you're much more reliant on what your policies are and 
projecting through the media. And one of the problems that, that we have in Britain is our, both the press and even bodies like the BBC that claim to be impartial, they see impartiality as being impartial between Labour and Conservative. They see everything in a two-party straight jacket. So, it, you know, there's been a number of examples over the last last quarter of a century where you know parties like the SDP or or sort of UKIP or various other parties of different political complexions that they've all failed to make a breakthrough because we've we've got this ossified two-party system so it's going to be really difficult to break through one of the things I do believe quite strongly I've just recently joined an organization called Compass and one of the, one of the things that they campaign for is the fact that in order to prevent the conservatives being in power in perpetuity it's really important that Labour, Lib Dems and Greens actually find the areas that they have common common ground and actually you know campaign on things like the need for constitutional reform the need for effective tackling of climate change um, because and t- because unless you can have a progressive breakthrough, you know, Sir Keir Starmer is getting excited at the moment because Labour's 20% ahead in the polls. But, you know, the one thing about British politics over the last 20, 30 years, it's so vo- vo- volatile. Things can change very quickly. And Rishi Sunak is not less trust, you know, with all the, the crazy sort of head-banging policies. He's much more... People... I think the public sees him as a, a bit of a, like, a, a cuddly f- f- figure. So even though he's got some quite hard-line policies, he's, he's got an image. So I, I think, you know, we, we can't assume that Labour's going to, going to romp to victory. And I think the way of getting the Conservatives out and keeping them out is for those progressive parties to actually work more together. Now, we've just seen the Lib Dems' eight-point plan for Peterborough launched. Uh, Point one is that the Lib Dems want to see crime and antisocial behaviour reduced, which seems like something that uh, everyone would want. How are you proposing to actually achieve it? Yeah, well, one of the ways of of achieving it is obviously to win power within the council um, because we've we've developed our eight-point plan plan which which has got the eight priorities that we would want to take forward if we were if we were to win control of the council but also if we were to hold the balance of power which possibly in the short term it's more likely that will hap- that, 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 that that will happen so we've we've put the the eight points in in a sort of priority order and the reason We've put crime and antisocial behaviour at the top is one of the things that we do in in Paston Walton and in other areas where we run active campaigns. We we go out and every year we ask people what they think the priorities are and time and time again people come back and they say it's crime, it's antisocial behaviour. With antisocial behaviour including really low-level stuff like littering and graffiti and some sometimes the sorts of things that you know, the police wouldn't regard us as a major priority. 
So one of the things the council has done, which which we support, is they've actually got teams of enforcement officers that work with the police. But And if you walk around Bridge Street and the city centre, you'll often see them in groups of two or three walking around. Our issue is that you, I, I've got a, quite a, I've got a council estate in my walk, and we have a big chunk of Paston. There's a lot of issues there about you know littering, crime, antisocial behaviour. You hardly ever see council enforcement officers there. So we, we really do think that these issues need to be t- tackled where the problems are, which is in places like Breton and Ravensthorpe, Orton and Paston. And so that's where we think the f- f- focus ought to be. Now, point three of the plan is that residents should be given a bigger say over what happens in their area. 50 people responded to the budget consultation, which is less than the number of Peterborough City councillors. Why do you think that people in the city are so disengaged with the political process? Right, OK, the, the, the whole budget consultation is interesting because um, what's hit... That that consultation you refer to is is when the council published its quite d- detailed budget proposals. They they publish a document, it's like a hundred pages long, and then they summarise it into a shorter version. Um, it's it's fairly dry, you know. It's got this is where we want to make hundred thousand pounds out savings in the in the in the in this area. I actually put an idea forward a couple of years ago because I'd seen other councils do, do this where. Rather than just doing that, they they actually have a a more interactive and, and sort of online type of consultation where where they, they they basically give people an opportunity to say if the, if the, if they had a budget of a hundred million, you know how much would they allocate to this service? And they they gave them a series of sl- of, sl- of sliders where you could move the slider along, and so. But, of course, if you increase the money for education, you've less money then to give to adult social care and to, and to parks. And and so what happened this year was, it, as a sort of preliminary budget consultation, that the council um, put forward what... Um, they took up m- m- my idea and, the, and they called it a budget simulator. And th- there was a bit of criticism of it from some... Some of, the, some of my colleagues on the council because they said oh, this is very patronising but rather than getting f- 50 responses I think they got something like 500 responses so and they've analysed that information and then they've, and they've used that in developing the final budget proposal so, so I think if you I think if you engage people you know in a positive and constructive way then I think you will get greater a great amount of participation. Where do you stand on the 5% rise in council tax, which is likely to be this year and next year as well? Yeah, um, I think, you know, no-one wants to, wants to make people pay more tax. And, you know, we've we've historically, as a, as a party, criticised the, the, the council tax because... It's a very unfair tax. It's what's known as a regressive tax because, you know, it hits people on lower incomes if, if they happen to be living in quite a large house or a house that's in an expensive area. Um, they can be hit as hard as somebody who's who's like a multi-million pound business person. 
And, you know, there's loads of anomalies in the council tax, like it was, it, it, it's basically a property tax, so it's based on the value of your property, but it's the value of what your property was worth in 1990 when the council tax was brought in. So if you look at a place like Peterborough, back in 1990, our properties were worth significantly less than what they're currently worth. And so, you know, we tend to lose out with the f- with the formula. So, you know, we would like to, we as a party would like to see council tax got re- got rid of and replaced with something that's a lot fairer, maybe like an income tax. Um, the problem with the percentage increase is that it's it's not an issue really that we've got a great deal of choice over because. Each year, um, we get we get Peter City Council gets a grant from central government, which which makes up a significant proportion of its budget. Central government calculates that grant on the assumption that we will increase the council tax by the maximum percentage, which this year is I think it's four point nine nine percent. So. If you fail to increase your council tax by 4.99%, um, you, you're perfectly entitled to, 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 to do that, but you, you're then going to have to make reductions in in services. And, and, it, and it has a further impact when you get to next year's budget, because next year, central government may say again, you can increase your budget, your council tax by maybe, maybe 3%. So... If you've not increased it this year, your 3% is not as great as a council who has increased. So really, although in theory central government is giving you choice, in actual fact you don't have any choice. And you can go back 10 or 15 years when, for a number of years, Peterborough City Council actually froze the council tax. And that means that we've got one of the lowest council taxes in the country but it also means we, we've had severe financial problems because the way the council tax formula works is once you drop behind you can't catch up one of the most suggested options from those who did take part in the budget consultation was for councillors to take a cut in their allowance do you think that peterborough's councillors are good value for money i think by and large that they are um we we've 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 rather skipped over the bit about how we you know we would like the the way the council operates to change. When I when I first came onto the council, we, we used to operate what was called a committee system, which was where all the major decisions were made by committees. So you'd have an education committee, you'd have a a social services committee, and then you'd have an overriding finance committee or we called it a policy committee so all councillors had an opportunity to be involved in in a committee and to be involved in the decision making process the problem now we've got the leader and cabinet system is that the majority of councillors are still on committees but they don't have any decision making power they're just doing what's known as scrutinising the real decision makers who are the leader and the cabinet so you could argue that do councillors play a, play a meaningful role w- within that structure? That they still, you know, have the role of representing their constituents, 
liberal, we, with liberal democrat councillors we have this philosophy that we work all year round so um we we aren't on tv but we're actually in a in a in a room where there are quite a number of liberal democrat focus leaflets up on the wall so every liberal democrat councillor is expected to produce one of those about once a month or once every two months to keep their constituents informed and to engage with them. So we would argue that Liberal Democrat councils do normally work really hard. Um, but going back to the the issue about about the allowances, we've we as a group on Liberal Democrats on the council have always had a fairly clear policy on this that. The council every four years gets an independent panel in. That's a group of um, normally somebody who's been involved in local government, perhaps a local business person, local trade union person, and they look at all the actual evidence. They compare what councillors in Peterborough get paid with what councillors in other areas get paid, and they take into account, you know, that often. To be a councillor, somebody may have to sacrifice their career or take time off work. That's taken into account. And they produce recommendations. The slight flaw in the system is it's then up to the, up to the full council to make the decision on it. And we think that's really, really wrong because any person, whether, you know, if, if you're a police officer, you don't get to vote on what police officers get paid. If you're a teacher, you don't... So, why should councillors de- decide what councillors are paid? So we w- we would like it to be an entirely independent process where we get this independent panel report and and, and sort of actually implement it because other, otherwise, you know, there's all... People think that, you know, that because councillors have the final say, they're going to vote themselves large increases. In actual fact, what happens is precisely the opposite. There's always pressure on them to say, well, this year we've got COVID, so we won't vote through the increase. This year we've got a cost of living crisis, so we, we won't vote through the, through the increase. And and the, the problem is then, you know, councillor allowances then slip further and further behind. So, yeah. Point four of the Lib Dem local plan is to improve public transport, roads and pavements, aiming to create a bus service that's reliable, frequent and affordable. Now, your personal social media is littered with complaints about cancelled bus services. There'll be an average of £12 precept added to people's counter-tax by the combined authority to make up the £3.5 million shortfall in funding following stagecoach handing back unprofitable services. Is a reliable, frequent and affordable bus service, which also serves more isolated communities, actually possible in this day and age? I, I think it should be in some form. Yeah, one of the one of the problems, um, if, if you read the more detailed a, a, a detailed part of our of our election manifesto what we say is that one of the problems at the moment is we've now handed over the, the, the public transport function to the combined authority um, so we can't really control what the bus service actually is um, the combined authority Nick Johnson who's the mayor of the combined authority has the has a power what's known as bus franchising so he can if he wants to do like 
the, the Mayor of Greater London has done and effectively take over the bus service and franchise it out to companies. And that's something we would like to see adopted here because um, at, the, at the moment, the, you know, the local bus services... It, when the when the current regime was brought in, in in the 1980s, it was supposed to hand over bus companies, bus services to private companies, and encourage competition. We've still got the private companies, but we no longer have the competition because the country's been carved up into areas, and we are in stage and coach area. So, but going back to your question, I think you know if we are, we we actually know in Peterborough that around about 25 to 30% of our carbon em- emissions come from transport. Now, one of the things that you see happening in Peterborough, you, you know, we've got a very good highway system. One of our criticisms of the Conservatives at the moment, they're putting massive amount of money into adding extra lanes onto the parkway during the A16. And that seems to work on the assumption that people will always want to travel by car. Now, you know, if we are serious about tackling um, climate change, we've really got to get people out of the habit of using cars. Some people will always use cars, but we need to give them a a meaningful choice. And certainly certainly in urban areas, it's been proven in Greater London, Greater Manchester, other areas, you can actually provide people with a regular and frequent bus service. We've even seen it in Peterborough where up to COVID, we had a long period when we had bus services in most parts of Peterborough were on like a 10-minute frequency. So it becomes like an underground train then and people can just turn up and and there's a bus there. So it it's convenient, it's frequent and it is relatively cheap if you get some of the discounted tickets just finally where there is a big problem though is in the rural areas because there it is arguably you know is it is it viable to have a have like a fixed route bus service so i think in those areas you may have to look at things like more what's known as demand responsive buses but really we need um we need the combined authority, combined authority they've just They're just in the process of passing a local transport plan which says they want to reduce journeys by car in Cambridge and Peterborough by 15% by 2030. So if that is their aim, we need some fairly dramatic change in policy for that to be achieved. Linking into that, point two of the Lib Dems plan is that you want to see a climate emergency tackled effectively. The city has a net zero target by 2030. In some other things, we're now saying 2040. Is that realistic? Well, um, what what the council has done, because for a, for a couple of years I was on the cross-party working group taking forward the, 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 the net zero carbon aspiration. Um, in 2019, like a lot of other councils, we passed the resolution saying we, we want the council to get to net zero carbon by 2030, but also we, we want to get the whole of Peterborough to net zero carbon. Now, there's been three iterations now of a Peterborough City Council carbon ma- management plan. Um, so I think 
the feeling at the moment seems to be that we've got a fairly good chance of getting the council and 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 its operations to net zero carbon by 2030. The problem is the rest of Peterborough, because as I say, you know, transport is responsible for something like 20 or 30 percent. Um, you've you've also got energy in people's houses now. These some of these things are things the council doesn't have a direct control over, but we really do need to, the council really does need to be like the driving force behind de- developing a plan. Now we're now in 2023. The target is for whole of Peterborough to be net zero by 2030. Now increasingly, I think people are coming to realise that because we don't yet have a citywide plan. And we've only got got seven years to go. So the council recently had some consultants in a company called Catapult who produced a local area, local area energy plan, which is all about, you know, retrofitting housing to make insulate it, producing more renewable energy. And in their report, the consultants said they don't think 2030 is is feasible. So they were talking about 2040. But I think re- regardless of where you set the target, what's needed is a plan with, you know, to, to say where are we going to be by 2025? Where are we going to be by 2030? So um, because the danger is if you have a 2040 target, you know, you wait till 2038 and then say, oh, are we going to meet the ch- target? The the cl- classic example is waste management, actually, because in 2008, the ca- the council was about 40% of municipal waste was recycled. They set a target to get to 65% by 2020. We're still on about 41%. So, so and l- it, it's okay having the target, but the target must dr- drive a plan which must drive ambition. The government recently announced that the city had been awarded nearly £48 million towards a major overhaul of the station. With money coming from other sources, the total budget is said to be around £78 million. Uh, Unless you've got any particular comment to make, we'll ignore the furore around the Conservatives' oversized cheque. Do you think that will be money well spent? Um, Yes, I think think we do need an upgrade at trains station because I think the current station was built in about 1975 um, about 10 years ago that they added a couple of extra platforms on but the actual you know the, the access to the to the station you've got you've got like a major dual carriageway that cuts off the, the station from the rest of the city centre and you, you've got to go over a f- footbridge to to get there. So I think you know the, the, one of the one of the major ideas about the railway station as well is to have have sort of access from both sides of the st- station. You know, w- which does mean that you know you you could take some of the traffic off um, Crescent Bridge because if you had access from the, from the other side. So so I think generally, you know, the proposal to upgrade the railway station is a, is a, is a good thing. What Lib Dems have, have argued for over a number of years is that, you know, we should do like some other places have done in the country. We, we shouldn't just have um, one station. You know, there's a... When the 
when the southern township of Hampton was being planned, there's, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a piece of land allocated for a Hampton train station. And um, that was in our plans for a number of years, but then it got taken out. Um, in the area I represent, which is, which is Walton, um, up to 1950s, there was a railway station where the Marham Rope footbridges so that's another possible location we have the railway line goes out to Spalding where the train runs direct from Peter's to Spalding going through goes to Walton goes near to Bratton goes past Warrington goes to Peacock so you know you could in theory have have railway stations there what we think with tr that one of the problems with transport policy in Peterborough is that a lot of it is very short term. You know, so if we are genuinely wanting to have a net zero future, if we want people in Peterborough to travel in an environmentally sustainable way, in the longer term, we need to be looking at things like light, light rail systems or tramways in the same way they've done in Sheffield, Nottingham, Croydon. And I just, neither from the council nor from the combined authority am I seeing that sort of long-term thinking. It's close to a year since the master plan for the embankment was released. <clears throat> what were your initial thoughts when it was released? Yeah, I think the, I think the problem with the embankment with the embankment, everybody recognises the importance, but everybody wants their own pet project to actually have a piece of it, and there's only a limited amount of um, amount of area. It's it's quite a you know, it's quite a large area of green space at the moment. It's used for a few major events like that. We have a fair there periodically. We you know, we have the beer festival. You know, we we have sometimes have like pop concerts and things but I think there's more you could do with the embankment particularly with the green space you know you, I've always said particularly around the edges you could plant more trees you could improve more biodiversity um, but and, and I think the Peterborough University is taking up a little a portion of, of the of the embankment the controversial element is the proposal to move the Peterborough United football ground there. Now, I think you know that we we need that there needs to be a planning application comes forward for that. Um, the current Peterborough local plan effectively rules it out because it says that area needs to be kept as public open space. Um, the council's just commissioned a review of the local plan, so we, we're going to have that argument at some point about you know how should that local bit of green space actually be allocated um my own per and this is a personal view because of the liberal i think from a liberal democrat perspective we want to maintain a reasonable amount of green space there but my personal view is i'd like to see the football ground redevelop its its ground where it currently is because you know, I think it's important to keep them in the city centre because I've seen loads of examples across the country of clubs that have moved way out into the countryside and, and some of them like Coventry and 
Darlington have, have come a cropper because they've effectively cut themselves off from their communities. But I think, you know, some redevelopment of the... Of, because the going back a number of years, the council purchased the football ground and then we sold it back to the club for about three million pounds less than what we paid for it. So that I always felt that was a very good deal for the football club, but not a brilliant deal for the council. But it it should have been on the assumption that they were going to remain there. So, you know, I'm I'm very sceptical about the idea of having a football ground on on the embankment, really because it's not just the football ground; it's all the car park and it's all the associated. Um, sort of elements, really. That that there possibly are other places in the city centre it could go. Yeah, but I, so I think we that's going to be something that will evolve over the, over time. I think the plan also included a, a new indoor pool to replace the regional. I think the plan was to place it behind the key theatre. Do you think that's likely to stay on the embankment? I don't know. To be honest, the um, there's a. I, I remember. You know, having been, <coughs> having been on the council for twenty five or more years, I remember when I, shortly after I came on, I was on a committee called the Community Services Committee, and I remember we we had a report on the swimming pool, and apparently that it's a really unusual swimming pool because conventionally you build a swimming pool into the ground. Our swimming pool is actually on the first floor of the, of the building, and it's in a gigantic tank. So the structure of the tank is supporting a, a massive volume of volume of water, so it's under tremendous pressure. Um, so it's always going to mean that you're going to have like faults developing, and so really, it's it needs such a lot of m- m- maintenance. I think there is a case for you know cl- closing it and replacing it. The, the proposal I heard, they were thinking about having one on Pleasure Fair Meadow, which is near the football ground. Apparently, they've now decided that's not a viable option. Um, I, I think so. I think we we probably do need a new pool. Um, we we had a debate at the full council meeting on this because Councillor John Fox, who's one of the one of the Wellington councillors, was saying that you know if we have a new pool, could that there's there was a promise years ago to have like a Warrington pool, so I, I think possibly we, we we may need we're a really fast growing city. We've now got a population of over two hundred thousand. So I think the we probably do need a pool in the city centre that everybody can have access to, but maybe we need other pools as well. You know, because um, I I when I first moved to Peterborough, I, I lived in Breton and um, there was a pool that was open to the public at the old Bretton Woods School. That's the Bretton Woods School's now an Aldi supermarket. The Lib Dems have four seats to defend in May's elections. What would constitute a good result for the party? We would, we've always advocated that that Peterborough City Council should operate under a, under a PR system because um, we, we already have multi-member wards but we have elections by third so one councillor comes up each year and you know we we'd like to see maybe all out elections every four years but they need to be under a PR system because otherwise you have ridiculous dramatic swings in composition so one of the characteristics of having elections by thirds is that some years you end up 
you're defending a lot of seats. Other years, you're not defending hardly any and have an opportunity to, to gain some more. Well, this is the year in the cycle where um, I think in all the wards that we've got councillors, we're defending seats. So we're defending in Paston Walton, in Gunthorpe, in Flatton, Stanground, and also in um, Hampton. So, um, you know, we're still, even though we, we have grown in Peterborough, we, we're much stronger than we were when, when I first came to Peterborough, you know, we're still the third party. And so, you know, we're not like the other parties. We don't have big corporate donors or, or trade union donors. So I, I think probably a good result would be us holding on to the seats that we currently have, perhaps with the possibility of picking up one elsewhere. Um, but I think possibly 2024 will be the opportunity that we will have to make a significant breakthrough. With Labour seemingly hemorrhaging councillors in the last year, two to the Greens and one now as an independent, do you think that will make it more difficult for the centre-of-left parties to be able to come together to run the council after the next election if they were to, to move into a majority position? I don't think necessarily it would. I think it makes it, if, if I'm absolutely honest, I, th- I think it, it makes it harder to, to take control off the, cons- off the Conservatives in the elections in 2022, you know, people often say to me, they say, well, the Conservatives only have 28 seats out of, out of 60. The, you know, the combined opposition parties have the other um, seats. So we effectively have 32. But in that 32, you've got Labour, Lib Dem, Greens, you've got Warrington, you've got Peterborough first, and you've got two or three, two or three independents. So to have put together a coalition involving all of those, you know, it. I think we did have some initial discussions about it, but I think in the end, Labour, I understand, came to the conclusion that they didn't want to work with people who were former Conservatives. So that so that all, be, all became problematical. So, so really to get control... F- to take control off the Conservatives, you'd need to push them down, you know, much lower. And so it doesn't make it easy to do that where Labour, because of all its internal arguments over, over anti-Semitism, you know, they, they've actually deselected some councillors who I think are excellent councillors, like Ansar Ali, you know. I don't think... I, I, I don't know what he, what he's alleged to have said, but... You know, he's been involved in community relations for years. I don't... He's never struck me that he's anti-Semitic in any sort of way. And and there was a number of others, you know, who, who fell victim to this Keir Starmer um, purge. So what it may depend on, you know, if they put up as independents in wards that are currently held by Labour, that may then open those seats up to being taken by the Conservatives. So, it, it, so it's going to make it harder for us to make the breakthrough. But I think if we could get in a position where Labour, Lib Dems and Greens you know, could actually have a majority between them, then I, I think that would create... Because we, you know, we, the, the three parties have been working, to, to, working together on a tactical basis on the council... 
Um, you know, certainly in the period when um, when I was group leader, we, we used to have regular m meetings to talk about issues that were coming up. And so I think there's at least the at least the at least the potential, you know, to put together some cooperation now. You may then try and push me and say, well, would that be a coalition or would it be a confidence and supplier arrangement? I think, you know, that depends very much on the arithmetic. But I think, you know, some form of cooperative arrangement shouldn't be beyond the bounds of imagination. And, you know, there's and if possibly for one simple reason that, you know, if the Conservatives lose further seats, um, they've been in power on the council now for 23 years so if if they if they've run the council for 23 years and they lose ground where is the credible argument that says that we as Lib Dem should put them back into power so so I think that then given the fact that somebody has to run the council it does then mean that you have to look at alternatives one of the just one final point on that I think that the, that the key thing that I've always felt, and, and it's number it's number three point in our eight point plan, giving residents a bigger say, means in practice changing the structure of, of the council, so moving back to a committee system, or some s system where power within the council is spread. So, if if you had a system like that, it wouldn't be so important which party was in inverted commas in control because in a sense all councillors would be in control. Would that be a prerequisite for any deal between the parties do you think from a Lib Dem perspective? Well um, I have to be careful here because obviously I'm the deputy mayor with possibility of becoming mayor next year so it's unlikely I would be you know I, I would give my opinion on that but you know Christian Hogg is now the Lib Dem group leader so he 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 would be leading on that, but I think you know we've we've always been fairly clear that we've got the eight point plan, but possibly the two really big things on it are changing the way the council operates and and effectively tackling climate change. We like to finish the podcast with some quick fire questions. If the Lib Dems had control of the council tomorrow, what are the first three changes that you'd make? Possibly the possibly the top three on our list really respond to local people's concerns by, you know, w working with the police to get a better grip on crime and antisocial be behaviour. You know, are we serious about tackling climate change? If we are. You know what we're doing about transport, what we're doing about insulating people's houses, and and the, and the third one, which we've already talked about, you know we can't carry on running the council as it currently is with decision making made by individuals in in private. We we want to, you know, I suppose to to give it a headline, almost like restore full council so that it's the parliament of peterborough so that, so all of the major decisions are made in public where people can come and see them or can watch them on on sort of youtube now as we said earlier you've been a councillor for 27 years what's been your biggest success as a councillor to date 
I think it's really probably when you're on when you're an opposition councillor, um, particularly under the type of system that we've got here, um, you don't make major breakthroughs in terms of in terms of policy. Um, one of I, I, I perhaps quote a couple of things. Um, one of the things I was involved in um, shortly after I came on the council, um, I was on. We, we had a hung council situation then, so we we, we were supporting a Labour administration. So I was involved with with the chair of the community services committee at that time in developing the council's first trees and woodland policy. We were one of the first councils in the country to have a trees and woodland policy. It means that. You know that all decisions now that are, are made about trees, there's a, a sound policy basis for it. So it's not which councillor can shout the largest gets his tree removed or gets another one planted. It's you know that there's a policy framework. So, and we've now have other councils coming to us asking how our policy works. So that was one thing. But I think that the, the other thing I've I've really enjoyed is just being a war councillor and you know having somebody come to you. So I've been ringing the council for weeks about this and the fact that you as a councillor, not that you can bang the table and demand something happens, but you can maybe go to a more senior officer and say, could you just have a look at this? And, and sometimes it's the fact that, you know, it just needs the wheels to be oiled a bit to enable, you know, some relative, relatively small change to happen so when you're able to do that over and over again that's you you actually feel that you are making a difference what is the one place or business in your ward that you would recommend the people of peterborough should visit well that's a really interesting question you know we've got um in our ward we you know we have um paston farm which has got like a community cafe it runs a they they, they have like the police boxing club operates from there um you know we've we've got a number of churches that are really really active there's um you know all saints uh, there's there's all saints church in paston yeah difficult one I, I would i would say that those are a couple that spring to mind really what piece of advice would you give to anyone that was considering standing as a councillor i think in peterborough because you know, some parts of the country you you can put yourself up as an independent and and have a reasonable chance of getting in. Um, we we do have a few independents on our council, but they they tend to be councillors who who have been members of parties and have left for various reasons. Um, so I w- I would say pick the party that you feel most closely aligns with your view, with, with your view, with your views and get involved with them because. You know, people think it's hard to become a councillor, but in actual fact, I was just talking to one of our Conservative and Cabinet members this morning, and we, he was saying that, that you know, the Conservatives have run the council for 20 years and they find it hard you know, to get people to, to put up as c- candidates. Um, it, it's actually really important that you know, we, we have people as councillors who broadly reflect the composition of Peterborough. So... You know, we've now got a big Lithuanian community, a, a big Polish community, and you know we've got a, a, a wide range of different people. And you don't always see those reflected in in the council ch- chamber. So I would say yes, you know, get involved with whatever political party takes your f- 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 fancy, and say you want to be a councillor, and 
they'll they'll probably put you forward fairly quickly, I think. Finally, give us a 30-second pitch as to why people should vote for Lib Dem in May. I think the reason, you know, we've we've outlined our eight-point plan, so... You know, we, we've not had a chance to cover all the points, but those are the eight things that we would prioritise if we have any sort of influence in in the, in the council. But I, th- I think fundamentally, if I had to pick what w- one of the eight points, I would say let's change the the type of council that we have. Let's let's have a council where the decision making process is more open, more democratic, more transparent and more responsive to the views of you, you, of, you, of, of people in Peterborough. Um, it, if you elect Liberal Democrat councillors, they do make that pledge you know, to keep in touch with you all year round, to find out your views, to respond to them, and, and try and help you to put them forward. So that's the reason to, to, to support us. Councillor Samford, thank you for joining me on The Politics of Peterborough. Thank you. Really good. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Councillor Nick Sanford for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at CLR Nick Sanford. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get each episode as soon as it's released. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show, or any questions you'd like us to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough@hotmail.com. This episode of The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time.